Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I wanted to introduce you to Alexis Boyer and get a, a sense of what she's done and process and a, and a little bit about her career. And I was also hoping to learn about Austin because uh, my wife and I continually, I mean, it's going to be hard to leave Laguna Beach, but we keep thinking about Austin. Well, Austin is an amazing place. It's absolutely beautiful here right now. Yeah, I bet. What's the temperature right now? That We, we were talking about this just the other day because we were sitting out on our patio and our patio overlooks the Pacific Ocean. So it's like you got to... 120 degree view of the of the ocean. Uh, I'd say today it's probably about 75. Oh. Um, the building that Blue Point is located in is on the river, so we have an amazing yeah. view of the cliffside and the river, and it's just gorgeous out here right now. What part of Austin is that? Uh, it's kind of central Austin. Um, if you've ever seen pictures of Austin, mm -hmm. there's a pretty famous bridge called Pennybacker Bridge. Oh. Uh, and yeah, we're located in the building just underneath that bridge. That's kind of central to downtown, right? Yeah. Okay. So, um, but but a little south of downtown, if I remember right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So, Alexis, why don't you um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, like what you do now? Uh, so, at the moment, I'm split half and half between being a foliage artist uh, and a character artist at Blue Point. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I'd say it's probably split 60-40 foliage and like 60% foliage and 40% characters. Um, yeah. So wait. Primarily a focus on foliage. Foliage and characters. Yeah. How's that work as an environment artist? Uh, so, I mean, for shadow, there was such an intense workload for the amount of time that I had and yeah. the fact that it was just me working on foliage that I kind of got stuck doing only foliage work yeah. um, and, and because we have a team of in, like really amazing environment artists um, when I joined on to Bluepoint I told them hey look I really enjoy foliage but I'd really love to do characters as well uh, and they have come through for me and said that they would love me to have do or love for me to do both that's awesome so this that was um, that was your payback for yeah. <laughs> awesome foliage. I love that. Yeah. And I was talking to, um, who was I talking to just the other day? We were talking about how environment, it was Henry. I was talking to Henry Kelly. He's running a class over at URT and, um, he was, uh, you have to excuse me. I'm right off the PCH. So if you guys are hearing that, that was somebody in distress. Um, so he was talking about how environment artists, like one of the biggest things is you're kind of a generalist and right. you know, you get called into a lot of areas. So right now you're an environment artist. That's the title. And do you do you, do you agree that that's kind of like that's one of the hardest to break down job descriptions? I think because it's so many things. It it is a lot of things, and especially where you work at a company that is on the smaller side, mm -hmm. um, you have to wear a lot of hats. Uh, and you know, one day you may be world building, the next day you may be prop building. You know, it's it you can jump around a lot, um, and. Yeah, I mean, in general, as an environment artist, there's so many things to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. like uh, if you're doing character, well, I'm on a character. 
But if you're doing environments, right. you're like, oh, it's a prop. Now I'm doing terrain. Now I'm doing right. trees and foliage. And, yeah. and then you're doing that building, you know, so many things. Um, do you find that environment artists specialize or, you know, how does this translate? So you've done foliage. How does this translate if you leave and you go to another company? Do you suddenly now start doing city blocks or how does that work for your career? You know, um, being an environment artist, you know, I've always done, you know, the rocks and the hard surface stuff and the yeah. bricks and whatnot. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a problem for me if I decided to go someplace else and I wasn't going to be working on foliage stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I personally prefer it because I love making trees. There's something about nature that is just captivating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, I think in general, as an environment artist, you understand so many different things about the environment that moving from one thing to another, as far as creating objects, if you were to go someplace else, it, it wouldn't be a detriment, I don't think. I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, I think it does. And But basically it says, you know, you, you can't get away with, or I don't want to put words in your mouth. It's harder to specialize in one thing in right. environments. Right. And, and I think in general, I think you'll be better off if you understand a lot of different things and try to stay away from the special specialization of I only do rocks or I only do hard surface or I only do organic, you know, because we need to do so many things as a team to get this thing done and out that you you may be asked to do something you're not comfortable with and having that understanding of doing many things is I think better for you and for your career. Got it. So this is one of the problems that I think students face in the beginning because you know they're trying to get a job and they they want their work to to get them the best possible avenue because you know everything depends on our work. Right. I was, I was talking to an interior designer here in, in Laguna and she was saying that you're only as good as your last job. And right. it made me think about us because it's kind of the same, you know? And yeah. so um, what do they need to focus on to, to get in the door as an environment artist? And, and maybe what might be wise is like, what was the path for you becoming an environment artist? Did you just go out there and learn everything? Or what was the first two or three steps of your career? Um, so... For my personal career, um, a lot of it was, you know, focusing on the fundamentals of, you know, materials, making sure that my materials look correct, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, not cutting corners because, you know, as veterans of the industry will see where you're trying to cut corners, right? Mm -hmm. You, You need to hold yourself to a level that people aren't going to point out things where you're embarrassed and you know that maybe you did cut that corner. Um, and then, you know, uh, personally, I started as a, a vertex pusher, you know, a seat, a seat fill in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's where a lot of people probably start is they have a decent portfolio coming out of school. And then it's you're you enter this industry as a, someone to fill a seat to get a game out the door, which is horrible as that seems and feels. <laughs> it's kind of a necessary evil for our industry. And so that's where I started. I started at Junction Point Games, um, trying to get Epic Mickey 2 out the door, doing a lot of vertex blending. I, did, I didn't get to model anything in that game. I didn't get to make any textures, uh, you know. And then from there, 
I moved on to another small company in Austin where I did get to model a bunch of stuff, you know, and that team was really small. And in that team, we had, we had to really wear a bunch of hats because there were only seven of us for the making of Record. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that game was a AAA game, you know, funded by Microsoft. And with seven artists, it's extremely daunting to try and understand how much work there is. And so for me, like I did a lot of the hard surface rocks and a lot of the terrain. Um, so building materials for terrain and uh, rocks, primarily terrain and rocks is what I did. Um, and then with that, moved on to Bluepoint where I got kind of stuck as being the, the foliage, not stuck, I, I love my job, <laughs> but you know, doing foliage, something that I really love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, for beginners, I would say that having people who are looking to get into this, having a, a really strong showcase of uh, materials, you know, whether that be substance generated materials or you know, ZBrush materials, um, showing that you can create a lot of different kinds of materials, as well as having a good understanding of, you know, low poly modeling, whether that be buildings or props or, you know, small environments, beauty corners. Um, I think, I think that's what's going to help people the most coming out of school. Got it. Uh, Yeah. Hopefully that wasn't a wild tangent. (laughs) No, that was good. So, um, if I can recap, what I heard was um, one of the most important things right off the bat was materials and yeah. making sure that on that level, you know, you're at least you're speaking the language and, and understanding what the differences are there. And so if we could just dive into that a little bit more, like what is it that makes, you know, a material like how do I say this? What what's the difference between cutting corners and really doing the work? If you could put it in words, because that's what we're really talking about right now. Is it is it specularity? Is it reflection? Is it, um, you know, having proper shadows? You know, what is it that really tells people that, you know, you've spent the time on materials? Um, so I think having a good understanding of PBR yep. is important. Um, and further into PBR, I guess understanding specularity or gloss maps in PBR. Um, I think if you can properly vary your specular values so that maybe when you're looking at something at a glancing angle, you can actually tell the differences in the material based on that glancing angle mm-hmm. uh, through the specular and metalness and whatnot. Um, Roughness. I think yeah, roughness. Um, I keep, I always forget that it's not specular anymore. I, you, and I both, you and I both. You and I both. So, you know, being able to show a good roughness that shows good values at a glancing angle is something that I look for when I'm looking at materials that I think are really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, proper albedos, you know, you don't want to have too much or any lighting information in your albedos. Um, cutting corners. Things like, you know, if you have, uh, just recently I saw someone who had a graph of a, a brick material and they they had, I guess, a sewer grate in the middle of this tiling brick material and they, they didn't break up the edge where the sewer grate met the actual brick. Mm-hmm. And to me, that seems like a cutting of a corner. While it looks okay, you know, you could have, the person could have stepped it up by putting, you know, a ring of bricks around where the sewer grate was. Um, you know, adding details like that are, I think, are going to set people apart from, you know, people who are maybe don't think about that or think, oh, this is good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and I, in that specific material, I saw that the person had taken their albedo for their bricks and shrunk it down and put it in the albedo of their metal for their sewer grate, which you can see, you can see the tiling in it. Um, uh. And I think that that was probably a corner that was cut that they were like, oh, well, I'll just put some color variation in here by just copying my brick and putting uh-huh. it in my metal. Uh-huh. And it, it stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> Yeah. So um, some somebody else may not see it right away, but a, a professional is looking for that kind of level of detail. They notice that. I get it. Right. Yes. And none of my students would do that, right, guys? Right. All right. So um, talk to me about foliage, if you can, because it's something I've been exploring. Because like I said, we got Henry Kelly teaching, and um, and this seems to be you know one of those areas that's it's growing a lot. And I was just in. Uh, we have this VR boot camp, and I was just in Orly Rodriguez's uh, thing. Um, he did this Twin Peaks VR experience, and in VR on my you know rinky dink PC. There was, I was in the middle of a forest, beautiful forest with everything moving. Like there's so much happening in this area. Right. Um, what are some of the tools that you use to develop environments and, and foliage and things? Uh, so I use Megascans. Okay. Um, we have access to Megascans library. Yeah. Um, Speedtree, uh, ZBrush, uh, and Maya, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so those are the primary four things that I use. Um, for Shadow, I did a lot of work using Speedtree uh, to make the actual trees themselves because speed tree is a fantastic tool uh, you know you can move sliders and change you know the how the branches break and where they break and mm-hmm. how many break and how many branches you have and the curliness of them and there's so many sliders and whatnot in that program that it makes creating trees really easy right. um, as well as you know, using mega scans to get a lot of the atlases for the leaves and whatnot. Can, um, can you take a second and tell me what atlases are? Um, this is something that I think uh, isn't really discussed a lot. You know, it's like one of those little details, like trim sheets, you know. Right. Um, okay. What is an atlas? Um, so for me, an atlas is, and I, I think this is an industry set, uh, industry standard, but yeah. an atlas is basically a sheet that has a bunch of different uh, leaves on it or, you know, a bunch of different things on one texture that is kind of like a micro library, sort of. So I have several atlases of leaves where, you know, it might be birch leaves, but there's 15 variations of birch leaves on this one atlas. Got it. So they all have their own you know small quadrant they're placed on here but mm-hmm. you can have you know live ones ones that are turning yellow brown dead yeah you know just a, a ton of textures on one large atlas okay got it and then um the purpose of this i think um what i was hearing yesterday when i was talking to henry was it reduces the um is it the texture calls draw calls what's the yeah okay. um Mostly the texture calls, um, you know, and I calling textures is also a draw call, mm-hmm. as far as I understand. Um, so the fewer textures that you have to call, the better the game's going to run. So for me, um, if you can go to the Redwood yeah. on my art station. Redwood. Uh, what would it look like? Um, the first one there. Which one? The very first, first one. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yes. So if you scroll down, there should be an atlas on here. Sweet. There you go. So for this, it's it's basically a sheet of all of my branches, mm-hmm. right? So the one that's on the bottom right is going to be for the top 
piece of the tree where, you know, I don't want to spend the extra geometry to model out all of those branches because you're never going to get close enough to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other pieces are, you know, I cut them out and then break them up in different ways. So I might have one you know, branch that has the whole branch, but then another branch I might cut off some of the smaller branches or cut it in half. So then I have a different piece um, that I can then make a whole bunch of branches out of these, what, five five pieces. Mm-hmm. So I could make an endless amount of branches with just this atlas. Got it. Um, yeah. And uh, are you doing this inside of speed tree photoshop maya just kind of pulling together a couple of planes or is there some automation to it uh there's no automation for it uh the, the atlas that we were just looking at mm-hmm. um were actually all mega scans so okay. what i ended up doing is taking mega scans not only 3d objects but atlases from mega scans that are just pine needles yep um, so the branches themselves were a 3d object from mega scans that i placed in maya uh, and then placed all of the branches branches for the pine needles and whatnot against it. And then in SpeedTree, you have the ability to screen capture the viewport, which allows me to get not only the transparency information from Pine Needle Atlas, because normally I haven't personally found a program that allows you to capture the transparency of a plane. This is going to be hard to explain, but if you have a leaf that has a transparency or a material that has a transparency and it's on a plane and you try and bake that plane, when you set Maya or any other rendering program to try and capture an alpha from that, it will capture the outline of the plane, not the transparency of the leaf. So that means that I have to go in and either individually model every single one of those needles or leaves, or, you know, I'm just not going to have a good transparency with something that already has transparency. So... SpeedTree allows you to put planes that have a pine needle texture on them that has a transparency, and it will actually cut out around the transparency of the material rather than around the plane. I hope that wasn't too confusing. (laughs) Well, I think it's good for now. And, And it speaks, you know, to this being a lot of process. So what do you think are some of, and I want to segue now away from some of the technical side. So what do you think are some of the um, characteristics or the traits, you know, that are are very useful as environment artists? And and by that, I'm looking at like, for example, let's say character artists. They're, you know, that's a job that goes for quite a long time on like one character. Whereas environment, you tend to have like multiple tasks and, you know, what are the characteristics or the, the things that help you succeed as an environment artist? Uh, I would say that being resilient, you know, to change um, and being accepting of the fact that things are going to change and they're going to change hands. So you may be working on a level and you move on from that level and somebody else is going to get that level. You know, working as an environment artist, you may not always be the only person responsible for what you're working on. Mm -hmm. And so being able to work with a team and work with other people and being open to their ideas and being able to share your ideas ideas in a constructive way, I think is really important. Um, I know when I was working on Shadow, I don't think I would have gotten the quality that I got if it hadn't been for the people that I was working with, you know, because that constructive criticism pushes everybody further. 
So being able to take criticism, um, being able to give criticism, being open to it, um, seeking out people to give reviews for your work, I think is always helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and just not being attached to your work to the point that you care about the quality and you care about getting it done, but understanding that it may switch hands tomorrow and it might look a little bit different than the way you made it, but everything about building an environment is about being a part of a team. Great. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what does it mean to be a part of a team in environments? Like how, uh, let's say if we take one of these environments, let's say, um, is there one environment here that might be a good one for us to kind of explain, you know, how many people and how people uh, work together? Um, the recore I would say, or? I don't know that recore is a great example, but I would say that maybe the second image, uh, yeah, that one. Yep. So if you scroll, there should be an image in there. Yeah, there we go. So that one. So um, this this level was built by three people. Um, it was me working with the foliage, uh, Justin Wagner working on a lot of the level building, and then um, there was another guy, Troy, who was working on a lot of the water sims and particles and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, every single day there was a lot of back and forth between Justin and I talking about, okay, this is how we want the trees to look, you know, this is how tall they should be, um, you know, working with engineers on overdraw, dealing with overdraw with Justin, trying to come up with ways to make sure that the game's going to run at frame rate, um, you know, going back and forth with him about ideas about where he should place things in what areas, you know, maybe he should put a rock here to kind of break up the flat level line of the ground and you know getting some more parallax in there mm -hmm. um, you know and then he'd come to me and say hey let's change the way that the roots look because I think that we can do it better um, and then working with Troy to you know get the water to look right you know making sure that it's shiny enough but it's not so shiny that it looks like diamonds in the sun and getting the particles you know from being a flat plane on the surface to well let's try making it an actual 3d particle and see how that works. Um, you know, it's it's a constant flow of, you know, pushing each other to make something great, you know. Uh, a lot of times I would build something and Justin would put it in the level and he'd say, well, you know, this looks good, but let's let's change, you know, the way the branches are so that we can get some more sunlight coming through right at this area. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of awesome teamwork. So when we talk about, like, let's say getting more light into an area, I think one of the things that kind of fascinates me, and, and we have a, a good bit of environment artists in here but um uh what i'm really wondering is there's a uh, level design there's uh there's game designer there's um the environment artist and i, and I was talking to melissa uh, altabello who's over at sucker punch and she was talking about how you know you can build an entire environment and then the the game designer will come in and you know they're focused right. on gameplay and everything right. you know changes and there's a whole sections that have to be redone even though they're done mm -hmm. does that happen um with you and and what is the interaction like uh with the with outside of the environment team who do you who are you responsible to uh so 
at Blue Point, since we've been making remakes, um, yeah. there isn't any design change. But when I was working on Recore, and before that, uh, there was a Batman game that we worked on for Vita. Yeah, a lot of times the design would change, and the designers would realize that this isn't working. We need to change it. And yes, the level would be completely done, and we would all go back to our desks and grumble and you know be upset about it. But that's also something that's constant in this: is that don't get super attached to it because it might and probably will change. Um, and I think having a good relationship with the designers and, you know, if you're frustrated about something that changed, maybe asking them why or getting a good understanding of why and then working with them to make sure that, you know, you can execute the design and what they see through the art well, you know, it, I feel like I'm getting off track. <laughs> No, that makes sense. Um, you know, they're looking for something and, you know, you have to change things, you know, accordingly. Um, is that just game right. designers? And how does that start to, do you ever interface with writers and directors and people of that nature? I've never personally interacted with writers. Um, I do interact a lot with engineers. Mm -hmm. um, engineers are definitely, you know, they're holding the leash on what we're allowed to do. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I'll have one engineer in particular at my desk say, this isn't going to run. You need to pull it back a little bit. <laughs> we'll go back and forth about, okay, so you tell me I can have three, but I want 12. <laughs> and so it's a lot of back and forth of, mm -hmm. you know, trying to work with the engineers and having a good relationship with them and saying, you know, maybe we can meet somewhere in the middle here to make this pretty and still make it run. Mm -hmm. um, so for me personally, it's more interacting with engineers um, than, say, writers or, you know, really producers. Um, I can't say I have a lot of experience in that because I've worked at small companies for most of my career. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, companies under or around 50 people. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Josh was asking, um, does Vertex Pusher mean you're just cleaning up other people's models? Primarily. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, when I was working at Junction Point, um, it, it meant mostly terrain blending. So we had materials like walls that would meet grass, and I had to set the vertex color to be right so that those two would blend between one another. Um, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily cleaning up other people's models. Um, I, I would personally hope that if there are people above you doing things that you wouldn't need to clean up their stuff, they should be professional enough to make proper geometry um, but yeah for me I just called myself a vert pusher because you know I'm sitting there selecting vert by vert changing the vertex color on it for a very long time all right uh, Jan's asking um, he's asking about project management stuff um, do you guys in terms of like working together do you guys use a uh, slack asana anything like that or is it just um, you know email and communicate in uh, meetings uh, so a lot of it is through slack and then I would say a huge majority of of it is standing around each other's desks, you mm -hmm. know, sitting with one another. Yeah. Um, I think face-to-face -face communication is really important. Um, you know, you, things might get lost over Slack or email. Um, you know, and and you can work together well with someone right there sitting next to you. Um, I mean, I would say that 90% of it, at least where I work, is sitting next to one another and working together. Yeah, got it. And how about programming? Is it useful, important to have any kind of exposure there so that you can communicate with the engineers, or is that just irrelevant? 
You know, I think being able to speak the language of an engineer would be fantastic. I am horrible at it. I am probably the least te technical person you'll ever meet. Um, every time I go to an engineer, I tell them to please speak slowly and act like they're talking to a three-year-old because I have <laughs> no idea what they're talking about. Um, I think if you, if you can understand engineering and coding or any of that stuff, then it will definitely help you. Um, I think there are some times where you run into engineers who don't want to speak to you like a three-year-old or they don't feel like it's worth their time to try and speak to you like a three-year-old so you can kind of run into jerks sometimes but mostly I find that engineers are they can dumb it down enough that if you don't know any coding they can get the point across got it even if they have to explain it four times <laughs> <laughs> got it um, Isaac's got a tech question or kind of a procedural question he's saying if you're re required to do foliage with snow variation how would you proceed in creating the snow variation for foliage textures when using mega skins ooh huh that you know I haven't ever had to deal with that I think I would probably make my atlases so like with that branch um, get my atlas set up without any snow on it and then probably take it into substance and build snow on top of it in substance because mm -hmm. um, that's that's not something I've ever had to personally do so th yeah that would be my answer is I would take it into build the atlas and take it into substance and see what I could do cool. <laughs> that works and then uh, Ceri's got a question she's asking um, you know one of the things that we ask people to do in the boot camps is uh, is to really focus on story and when they're creating props, which is the main thing that we, we do at the first, second stage of the environment bootcamp, um, is make sure that, you know, there's a story and that there's some kind of connection. You know, if, if it's a soda can, then, you know, where has it been? What's happened to it? You know, all that good right. stuff. You know, we want to understand story because at the end of the day, game's story. Um, so Ceri's asking, what's your favorite model you made so far and why so? And, and I'm assuming it's along the lines of, you know, being invested in pieces and, um, and you know, having them mean something to you. So um, is there any, does that ring with you? Is there any uh, model that you really enjoyed making that really started to, you know, connect with you? Yeah, I would say it's probably the one your cursor's hanging over right now. That's that Where's kind of cursor? yellow ball. Yeah. Um, so this was just kind of some strange contraption that we had in Recore. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was supposed to look like it had been dropped and banged and, you know, a sandstorm had gone over it. Um, and it was supposed to be um, like a place where the, the cores in the game were created. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having, you know, making it look like maybe the thing could open, um, giving it where, you know, it, the prop itself is a little bit hard to see everything that would happen with it because mm -hmm. it's not actually environment. Um, but, you know, adding those things like the dents and the cracked paint, uh, when you get it into the environment with the tubes and, you know, the rocks and the sand and everything that's all over it, um, I think really helps tell that story. Uh, and yeah, it, I mean, games are all about telling stories, and I agree that every every prop you ever make should have some kind of story to it. Awesome. I think uh, I've got a couple more questions, then I will um, let you go. But um, Edison's asking about genres of games. Is there any genre of game that you like? And of course, that presume, uh, assumes a question. You know, do you have to be a gamer to work in games? So. Uh, do you play, and which one, which genre do you like? Uh, so I do play. Um, there's a lot of genres that I like. I I think I'm the biggest fan of FPSs. Um, I also like RPGs, mm -hmm. uh, action games. 
Um, most recently, I've been playing Far Cry 5, which is amazing. God, that game looks so good. Um, I, I don't know that you need to be a gamer necessarily to make games, though. I think playing games helps you stay competitive as far as seeing and being inspired by what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, playing Far Cry 5, I'm looking at, you know, their foliage and their grass and their trees and everything, and it's just like, wow, these are things that I could do that, you know, maybe I didn't think about before. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good but, point. You see what other people are doing. Right. Yep. And I think it's important in that sense that you, you want to stay competitive. You want to keep up with what other people are doing and being inspired by what they do. Um, outside of that, I don't really play a whole lot of games. Because I work in this industry, I would rather be outside mm-hmm. than inside playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I think it is necessary that you play and you look at what your peers are doing. Got it. Um, and then I think what I want to do is ask uh, is ask Michaelson. And that kind of segues into the last questions I, uh, I like to ask. But Michael's asking, um, he's been out of college for two years trying to be an uh, asset artist to break into the industry. What advice um, do you have for somebody who's you know, been out of college? Obviously, he's here um, taking classes, but um, he's out of college trying to trying to make himself useful and mm-hmm. and get that first job you know what okay. are some of the ways that they can that somebody can like make get themselves more exposure you know connect find that job um well i would say that if if i were a student out of the or out of college um trying to get a job my number one goal would be to try to get on the front page of art station mm-hmm. so when you get to the front page of art station it's just a snowball of people looking at your your portfolio and your work. Um, and so I think creating something that you think is the quality level that could be on the front page of ArtStation uh, would be the number one goal. Um, so really focusing on you know normal baking and making sure your normals look good and they don't look flat. And like I said, all of your material work. Um, and then also, I think a good marketing way to help you get to the front page of ArtStation is making sure that that thumbnail that you post is going to be a knockout thumbnail that everybody's going to see that out of all of the stuff that's on ArtStation, all of the stuff that's in that trending page or in that latest page, that it is something that people want to click on. So getting a thumbnail that has high contrast, you know, something that's got real pop of color or something light surrounded by, you know, stuff that's a little bit darker or, you know, just high contrast and then maybe having a banner on it um, for when we did the, the Shadow of the Colossus dump, you know, we, we all had the same banner to go underneath it. And, mm. you know, when you have something that is high contrast, so like if you look, yeah. if you can go back to the front page. Yep. So a lot of these materials that you see on here, like the, the substance <laughs> sphere, mm-hmm. ones that pop out to you immediately are the ones that have high contrast. Mm, so yeah. the, the red rock, um, and then there's the one that says breakdown. Um, you know, there's the ramen bowl over there. Uh, I think having a good thumbnail to make sure that people see your work on ArtStation is really important. Um, and then just having the quality to get there. But that, that thumbnail is going to be what catches people's eye. Got it. Great. Does that answer your question, my friend? Uh, and Edison, this is a good one. Does fan art uh, – I lost it. Does fan art with great quality uh, work? 
Is that, and is that your question, Edison? I'm a little confused at how you, you wrote it. Um, and so what uh, Edison's asking is, is he supposed to be doing original work? Is he supposed to be doing um, fan art? You know, does it matter? And uh, I don't know, can you see uh, much of the screen there? Yeah, I can see it. Okay, so let me show you Edison's work. So Edison's doing, um, Edison, I'll show, show her some of the stuff you got here. So here's some of the things that he's working on. So these are all part of um, a building. So this is all, he's doing this from a photo, um, mm -hmm. you know, to see what he needs to do. And then it, it all builds up. How do I exit? Uh, into this, which he's getting ready. Um, mm -hmm. you know, to do the lighting and, and all that. So he's still getting all that stuff ready. But um, is it important to be doing things of this nature? Or, uh, you know, is fan art a problem for people to be working on? I I don't think fan art is something that is going to be detrimental to what you're doing. Okay. Um, usually, you know, in my opinion, fan art, there's a very, you know, strict design of something that you're trying to capture because, you know, this is a thing that already exists and you're just trying to mimic it or, you know, copy it or remake it or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that for some artists, having something to look at and to mimic can be easier um, because in, in the industry, a lot of times we have concept artists. You know, I, I don't necessarily come up with the idea of what I'm making. Usually it's somebody else. They hand me a concept and it's a picture and I have to go off of that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think, I think fan art's good. Having a concept is good. Um, I think maybe, you know, taking something that maybe has been successful, as long as you go ask the person on ArtStation or message them and get permission, I think using a concept from someone else is a good way to start because then you don't need to come up with your own ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, because for me, making original stuff a lot of times can be challenging because, you know, maybe I get lost in doing this one thing and I should be focusing on something else or, you know, there are details that I'm missing that might add to a scene that maybe someone else has, has already sketched out. Got it. Great. All right. So we've hit a little bit about her career, um, about foliage and some elements of um, like world building, prop building, uh, things of that nature, as well as some of the um, the characteristics that we think that she thinks are relevant for us as game artists. So uh, thank you guys so much for asking these questions and for pushing that stuff um, forward and, and, and for being here. And Alexis, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. All right. And uh, so any places hiring that you know of? Uh, well, Bluepoint is hiring. There you go, guys. Um, <laughs> looking for specifically uh, people who are really skilled with substance. Substance um, painter, designer? Designer, I imagine. Designer. Yeah. Yeah, substance designer. We need some badass material artists. And what does uh, uh, really skilled mean? Like, how is that represented? Is it, you know, do they have to be able to put variables into it that, you know, can can modify, you know, a brick or is it just focusing on the roughness and making sure that that stuff matches? Like what are the, some of the things that trigger you to, to say that somebody's solid? Uh, I would say, yeah, good, good roughness, good um, height, yep. you know, with, with substance designer, you can have that height offset, making right. sure that that's not crazy. Um, you know, understanding your source, you know, whether it be making a brick or a rock or whatever. Um, and then I think a big part of it is a lot of times when you, like, if you do an art test for a game studio, they're going to ask you for your substance file. You, you should make sure that your substance file is going to be strong 
structured well that if someone who's never seen your graph is going to open that file and understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it should be very clear what you're doing from the beginning of the graph to the end and not maybe, you know, before you have your grayscale for the material done, making sure that you're not building the albedo before you have your normal math and your height finished. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we, we've seen some cases where they start building the albedo before the normal and height is done and then that it doesn't show a good workflow for someone else who's going to try and go in there and maybe modify that material. Hmm. Um, Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Traditional painters work with black and white too. So, uh, Okay, and sorry, I just got a couple more questions. So Samantha's asking about um, working remotely as an artist. Do you guys work with uh, outsourcers? Is it all in-house? Somebody has to be there, and if they're outside of the U.S., then they have to deal with a visa? Or um, We have one artist here who works on a visa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do have some people that work remote. They're primarily concept. Um, and then we have one effects guy who works remotely. Uh, and then we have a tools programmer who works remotely. Um, I would say that the people who work remotely are primarily people who work alone. So it's not an issue for them to work remotely. Right. Um, a lot of times, because if you're on an environment team, you're working with a team. Um, usually, at least in my case, we're paired up with another person. Um, so two people are working in that level together so you need to be there to interact with them and communicate with them Um, yeah got it that's great all right guys thank you so much and alexis again man thank you so much for um for taking the time out yeah of course all right take care have a great weekend guys see you alexis thank you bye bye All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.